Chapter Thirty of the Prairie by James Fenimore Cooper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Peck. Is this proceeding just and honorable? Shakespeare. During the occurrence of these events on the upland plain, the warriors on the bottom had not been idle. We left the adverse bands watching one another on the opposite banks of the stream, each endeavoring to excite its enemy to some act of indiscretion by the most reproachful taunts and revilings. But the Pawnee chief was not slow to discover that his crafty antagonist had no objection to waste the time so idly, and, as they mutually proved, in expedients that were so entirely useless. He changed his plans accordingly, and withdrew from the bank, as has been already explained through the mouth of the trapper, in order to invite the more numerous host of the Sioux to cross. The challenge was not accepted, and the loops were compelled to frame some other method to attain their end. Instead of any longer throwing away the precious moments in fruitless endeavors to induce his foe to cross the stream, the young partisan of the Pawnees led his troops at a swift gallop along its margin in quest of some favorable spot where by a sudden push he might throw his own band without loss to the opposite shore. The instant his object was discovered, each mounted Teton received a footman behind him, and Matori was still enabled to concentrate his whole force against the effort. Perceiving that his design was anticipated, and unwilling to blow his horses by a race that would disqualify them for service, even after they had succeeded in outstripping the more heavily burdened cattle of the Sioux, Hardheart drew up and came to a dead halt on the very margin of the watercourse. As the country was too open for any of the usual devices of savage warfare, and time was so pressing, the chivalrous Pawnee resolved to bring on the result by one of those acts of personal daring, for which the Indian braves are so remarkable, and by which they often purchase their highest and dearest renown. The spot he had selected was favorable to such a project, the river, which throughout most of the course was deep and rapid, had expanded there to more than twice its customary width, and the rippling of its waters proved that it flowed over a shallow bottom. In the center of the current there was an extensive and naked bed of sand, but a little raised above the level of the stream, and of a color and consistency which warranted, to a practice eye, that it afforded a firm and safe foundation for the foot. To this spot the partisan now turned his wistful gaze, nor was he long in making his decision. First speaking to his warriors, and apprising them of his intentions, he dashed into the current, and partly by swimming, and more by the use of his horse's feet, he reached the island in safety. The experience of Hardheart had not deceived him. When his snorting steed issued from the water, he found himself on a tremendous but damp and compact bed of sand, that was admirably adapted to the exhibition of the finest powers of the animal. The horse seemed conscious of the advantage, and bore his warlike rider with an elasticity of step and a loftiness of air, that would have done no discredit to the highest trained and most generous charger. The blood of the chief himself quickened with the excitement of his situation. He sat the beast as if conscious that the eyes of the two tribes were on his movements, and, as nothing could be more acceptable and grateful to his own band, than this display of native grace and courage, so nothing could be more taunting and humiliating to their enemies. The sudden appearance of the Pawnee on the sands was announced among the Tetons by a general yell of savage anger. 
a rush was made to the shore, followed by a discharge of fifty arrows and a few fusees, and, on the part of several braves, there was a plain manifestation of a desire to plunge into the water, in order to punish the temerity of their insolent foe. But a call and a mandate from Matori checked the rising and nearly ungovernable temper of his band. So far from allowing a single foot to be wet, or a repetition of the fruitless efforts of his people to drive away their foe with missiles, the whole of the party was commanded to retire from the shore, while he himself communicated his intentions to one or two of his most favoured followers. When the Pawnees observed the rush of their enemies, twenty warriors rode into the stream, but so soon as they perceived that the Tetons had withdrawn, they fell back to a man, leaving the young chief to the support of his own often-tried skill and well-established courage. The instructions of Hardheart on quitting his band had been worthy of self-devotion and daring of his character. So long as single warriors came against him, he was to be left to the keeping of the Wakanda and his own arm. But should the Sioux attack him in numbers, he was to be sustained, man for man, even to the extent of his whole force. These generous orders were strictly obeyed, and though so many hearts in the troop panted to share in the glory and danger of their partisan, not a warrior was found among them all who did not know how to conceal his impatience under the usual mask of Indian self-restraint. They watched the issue with quick and jealous eyes, nor did a single exclamation of surprise escape them when they saw, as will soon be apparent, that the experiment of their chief was as likely to conduce to peace as to war. Matori was not long in communicating his plans to his confidence, whom he as quickly dismissed to join their fellows in the rear. The Teton entered a short distance into the stream and halted. Here he raised his hand several times, with the palm outwards, and made several of those other signs, which are construed into a pledge of amicable intentions among the inhabitants of those regions. Then, as if to confirm the sincerity of his faith, he cast his fusee to the shore and entered deeper into the water, where he again came to a stand, in order to see in what manner the Pawnee would receive his pledges of peace. The crafty Sioux had not made his calculations on the noble and honest nature of his more youthful rival in vain. Hardheart had continued galloping across the sands during the discharge of missiles and the appearance of a general onset, with the same proud and confident mien as that with which he had first braved the danger. When he saw the well-known person of the Teton partisan enter the river, he waved his hand in triumph, and flourishing his lance, he raised the thrilling war-cry of his people as a challenge for him to come on. But when he saw the signs of a truce, though deeply practiced in the treachery of savage combats, he disdained to show a less manly reliance on himself than that which his enemy had seen fit to exhibit. Riding to the farthest extremity of the sands, he cast his own fusee from him, and returned to the point whence he had started. The two chiefs were now armed alike. Each had his spear, his bow, his quiver, his little battle-axe, and his knife. And each had also a shield of hides, which might serve as a means of defense against a surprise from any of these weapons. The Sioux no longer hesitated, but advanced deeper into the stream, and soon landed on a point of the island which his courteous adversary had left free for that purpose. Had one been there to watch the countenance of Matori as he crossed the water that separated him from the most formidable and most hated of all his rivals, he might have fancied that he could trace the gleamings of his secret joy, 
breaking through the cloud which deep cunning and heartless treachery had drawn before his swarthy visage. And yet there would have been moments when he might have believed that the flashings of the Teton's eye and the expansion of his nostrils had their origin in a nobler sentiment, and one more worthy of an Indian chief. The Pawnee awaited the time of his enemy with calmness and dignity. The Teton made a short run or two to curb the impatience of his steed, and to recover his seat after the effort of crossing, and then he rode into the centre of the place and invited the other, by a courteous gesture, to approach. Hardheart drew nigh, until he found himself at a distance equally suited to the advance or to retreat, and, in his turn, he came to a stand, keeping his glowing eye riveted on that of his enemy. A long and grave pause succeeded this movement, during which these two distinguished braves, who were now for the first time confronted with arms in their hands, sat regarding each other like warriors who knew how to value the merits of a gallant foe, however hated. But the mien of Matori was far less stern and warlike than that of the partisan of the Loops. Throwing his shield over his shoulder, as if to invite the confidence of the other, he made a gesture of salutation, and was the first to speak. "'Let the Pawnees go upon the hills,' he said, "'and look from the morning to the evening sun, from the country of snows to the land of many flowers, and they will see that the earth is very large. Why cannot the red men find room on it for all their villages?' "'Has the Teton ever known a warrior of the Loops come to his towns to beg a place for his lodge?' returned the young brave, with a look in which pride and contempt were not attempted to be concealed. "'When the Pawnees hunt, do they send runners to ask Matari if there are no Sioux on the prairies?' "'When there is hunger in the lodge of a warrior, he looks for the buffalo, which is given him for food,' the Teton continued, struggling to keep down the ire excited by the other's scorn. "'The Wakanda has made more of them than he has made Indians.' He has not said, This buffalo shall be for a Pawnee, and that for a Dakota, this beaver for Kanza, and that for an Omawa. No, he said, There are enough. I love my red children, and I have given them great riches. The swiftest horse shall not go from the village of the Tetons to the village of the Loops and many sons. It is far from the towns of the Pawnees to the river of the Osages. There is room for all that I love. Why then should a red man strike his brother? Hardheart dropped one end of his lance to the earth, and having also cast a shield across his shoulder, he sat leaning lightly on the weapon, as he answered with a smile of no doubtful expression. Are the Tetons weary of the hunts and of the warpath? Do they wish to cook the venison and not to kill it? Do they intend to let the hair cover their heads, that their enemies shall not know where to find their scalps? Go, a Pawnee warrior will never come among such Sioux squaws for a wife. A frightful gleam of ferocity broke out of the restraint of the Dakota's countenance as he listened to this biting insult. But he was quick in subduing the tell-tale feeling in an expression much better suited to his present purpose. This is the way a young chief should talk of war, he answered with singular composure. But Matori has seen the misery of more winters than his brother. When the nights have been long, and darkness has been in his lodge, while the young men slept, he has thought of the hardships of his people. He has said to himself, Teton, count the scalps in your smoke. They are all red but two. Does the wolf destroy the wolf, or the rattler strike his brother? 
You know they do not. Therefore, Teton, are you wrong to go on a path that leads to the village of a redskin with a tomahawk in your hand? The Sioux would rob the warrior of his fame? He would say to his young men, Go, dig roots in the prairies, and find holes to bury your tomahawks in. You are no longer braves. If the tongue of Matori ever says thus, returned the crafty chief, with an appearance of strong indignation, let this woman cut it out, and burn it with the offals of the buffalo. No, he added, advancing a few feet nigher to the immovable hardheart, as if in the sincerity of confidence. The red men can never want an enemy. They are plentier than the leaves on the trees, the birds in the heavens, or the buffaloes on the prairies. Let my brother open his eyes wide. Does he nowhere see an enemy he would strike? How long is it since the Teton counted the scalps of his warriors that were drying in the smoke of a pawnee lodge? The hand that took them is here, and ready to make eighteen, twenty. Now, let not the mind of my brother go on a crooked path. If a redskin strikes a redskin forever, who will be masters of the prairies, when no warriors are left to say, they are mine? Hear the voices of the old men. They tell us that in their days many Indians have come out of the woods under the rising sun, and that they have filled the prairies with their complaints of the robberies of the long knives. Where a pale-face comes, a red man cannot stay. The land is too small. They are always hungry. See, they are here already. As the Teton spoke, he pointed towards the tents of Ishmael, which were in plain sight, and then he paused to await the effect of his words on the mind of his ingenious foe. Hardheart listened like one in whom a train of novel ideas had been excited by the reasoning of the other. He mused for a minute before he demanded, What do the wise chiefs of the Sioux say must be done? They think that the moccasin of every pale-face should be followed like the track of the bear, that the long-knife who comes upon the prairie should never go back, that the path shall be open to those who come and shut to those who go. Yonder are many. They have horses and guns. They are rich, but we are poor. Will the Pawnees meet the Tetons in council? And when the sun is gone behind the rocky mountains, they will say, This is for a loop, and this is for a Sioux. Teton, no! Hard heart has never struck the stranger. They come into his lodge and eat, and they go out in safety. A mighty chief is their friend. When my people call the young men to go on the warpath, the moccasin of Hardheart is the last. But his village is no sooner hid by the trees than it is the first. No, Teton, his arm will never be lifted against the stranger. Fool, die with empty hands, Matori exclaimed, setting an arrow to his bow, and sending it with a sudden and deadly aim full at the naked bosom of his generous and confiding enemy. The action of the treacherous Teton was too quick and too well matured to admit of any of the ordinary means of defense on the part of the Pawnee. His shield was hanging at his shoulder, and even the arrow had been suffered to fall from its place and lay in the hollow of the hand which grasped his bow. But the quick eye of the brave had time to see the movement, and his ready thoughts did not desert him. Pulling hard and with a jerk upon the rein, his steed reared his forward legs into the air, and, as the rider bent his body low, the horse served for a shield against the danger. So true, however, was the aim, and so powerful the force by which it was sent,
that the arrow entered the neck of the animal and broke the skin on the opposite side. Quicker than thought, Hardhart sent back an answering arrow. The shield of the Teton was transfixed, but his person was untouched. For a few moments the twang of the bow and the glancing of arrows were incessant. Notwithstanding, the combatants were compelled to give so large a portion of their care to the means of defence. The quivers were soon exhausted, and though blood had been drawn, it was not in sufficient quantities to impair the energy of the combat. A series of masterly and rapid evolutions with the horses now commenced. The wheelings, the charges, the advances, and the circuitous retreats were like the fights of circling swallows. Blows were struck with the lance, the sand was scattered in the air, and the shocks often seemed to be unavoidably fatal. But still each party kept his seat, and still each rein was managed with a steady hand. At length the Teton was driven to the necessity of throwing himself from his horse to escape a thrust that would otherwise have proved fatal. The Pawnee passed his lance through the beast, uttering a shout of triumph as he galloped by. Turning in his tracks, he was about to push the advantage, when his own mettled steed staggered and fell under a burden that he could no longer sustain. Matori answered his premature cry of victory, and rushed upon the entangled youth with knife and tomahawk. The utmost agility of Hardheart had not sufficed to extricate himself in season from the fallen beast. He saw that his case was desperate. Feeling for his knife, he took the blade between a finger and thumb, and cast it with admirable coolness at his advancing foe. The keen weapon whirled a few times in the air and its point meeting the naked breast of the impetuous Sioux, the blade was buried to the buckhorn haft. Matori laid his hand on the weapon, and seemed to hesitate whether to withdraw it or not. For a moment his countenance darkened with the most inextinguishable hatred and ferocity, and then, as if inwardly admonished how little time he had to lose, he staggered to the edge of the sands, and halted with his feet in the water. The Cunning and duplicity, which had so long obscured the brighter and nobler traits of his character, were lost in the never-dying sentiment of pride which he had imbibed in youth. "'Boy of the loops,' he said, with a smile of grim satisfaction, "'the scalp of a mighty Dakota shall never dry in Pawnee's smoke.' Drawing the knife from the wound, he hurled it towards the enemy in disdain. Then, shaking his arm at his successful foe, his swarthy countenance appearing to struggle with volumes of scorn and hatred, that he could not utter with the tongue, he cast himself headlong into one of the most rapid veins of the current, his hand still waving in triumph above the fluid, even after his body had sunk into the tide forever. Hardheart was by this time free. The silence, which had hitherto reigned in the bands, was suddenly broken by general and tumultuous shouts. Fifty of the adverse warriors were already in the river, hastening to destroy or to defend the conqueror, and the combat was rather on the eve of its commencement than near its termination. But to all these signs of danger and need, the young victor was insensible. He sprang for the knife and bounded with the foot of an antelope along the sands, looking for the receding fluid which concealed his prize. A dark, bloody spot indicated the place, and, armed with the knife, he plunged into the stream, resolute to die in the flood, or to return with his trophy. In the meantime, the sands became a scene of bloodshed and violence. Better mounted and perhaps more ardent, the Pawnees had, however, reached the spot in their sufficient numbers to force their enemies to retire. The victors pushed their success to the opposite shore, and gained the solid ground in the melee of the fight. Here they were met by all the unmounted Tetons, 
and, in their turn, they were forced to give away. The combat now became more characteristic and circumspect, as the hot impulses which had driven both parties to mingle in so deadly a struggle began to cool, the chiefs were enabled to exercise their influence and to temper the assaults with prudence. In consequence of the admonitions of their leaders, the Sioux sought such covers as the grass afforded, or here and there some bush or slight inequality of the ground, and the charges of the Pawnee warriors necessarily became more wary and, of course, less fatal. In this manner, the contest continued with a varied success, and without much loss. The Sioux had succeeded in forcing themselves into a thick growth of rank grass, where the horses of their enemies could not enter, or where, when entered, they were worse than useless. It became necessary to dislodge the Tetons from this cover, or the object of the combat must be abandoned. Several desperate efforts had been repulsed, and the disheartened Pawnees were beginning to think of a retreat, when the well-known war-cry of Hardheart was heard at hand, and at the next instant the chief appeared in their center, flourishing the scalp of the great Sioux as a banner that would lead to victory. He was greeted by a shout of delight, and followed into the cover with an impetuosity that, for the moment, drove all before it. But the bloody trophy in the hand of the partisan served as an incentive to the attack, as well as to the assailants. Matari had left many a daring brave behind him in his band, and the orator, who in the debates of that day had manifested such pacific thoughts, now exhibited the most generous self-devotion in order to wrest the memorial of a man he had never loved from the hands of the avowed enemies of his people. The result was in favor of numbers. After a severe struggle, in which the finest displays of personal intrepidity were exhibited by all the chiefs, the Pawnees were compelled to retire upon the open bottom, closely pressed by the Sioux, who failed not to seize each foot of ground ceded by their enemies. Had the Tetons stayed their efforts on the margin of the grass, it is probable that the honor of the day would have been theirs, notwithstanding the irretrievable loss they had sustained in the death of Matari. But the more reckless braves of the band were guilty of an indiscretion that entirely changed the fortunes of the fight and suddenly stripped them of their hard-earned advantages. A Pawnee chief had sunk under the numerous wounds he had received, and he fell a target for a dozen arrows in the very last group of his retiring party. Regardless alike of inflicting further injury on their foes, and of the temerity of the act, the Sioux braves bounded forward with a whoop, each man burning with the wish to reap the high renown of striking the body of the dead. They were met by Hardheart and a chosen knot of warriors, all of whom were just as stoutly bent on saving the honor of their nation from so foul a stain. The struggle was hand to hand, and blood began to flow more freely. As the Pawnees retired with the body, the Sioux pressed upon their footsteps, and at length the whole of the latter broke out of the cover with a common yell, and threatened to bear down all opposition by sheer physical superiority. The fate of Hardheart and his companions, all of whom would have died rather than relinquish their object, would have been quickly sealed, but for a powerful and unlooked-for interposition in their favor. A shout was heard from a little break on the left, and a volley from the fatal western rifle immediately succeeded. Some five or six Sioux leaped forward in the death agony, and every arm among them was as suddenly suspended as if the lightning had flashed from the clouds to aid the cause of the loops. Then came Ishmael and his stout sons in open view, bearing down upon their late treacherous allies, with looks and voices that proclaimed the character of the Sukkur. 
The shock was too much for the fortitude of the Tetons. Several of their bravest chiefs had already fallen, and those that remained were instantly abandoned by the whole of the inferior herd. A few of the most desperate braves still lingered nigh the fatal symbol of their honor, and there nobly met their deaths under the blows of the re-encouraged Pawnees. A second discharge from the rifles of the squatter and his party completed the victory. The Sioux were now to be seen flying to more distant covers with the same eagerness and desperation as, a few moments before, they had been plunging into the fight. The triumphant Pawnees bounded forward in chase like so many high-blooded and well-trained hounds. On every side were heard the cries of victory or the yell of revenge. A few of the fugitives endeavored to bear away the bodies of their fallen warriors, but the hot pursuit quickly compelled them to abandon the slain in order to preserve the living. Among all the struggles which were made on that occasion to guard the honor of the Sioux from the stain which their peculiar opinions attached to the possession of the scalp of a fallen brave, but one solitary instance of success occurred. The opposition of a particular chief to the hostile proceedings in the councils of that morning has been already seen. But, after having raised his voice in vain, in support of peace, his arm was not backward in doing its duty in the war. His proudness had been mentioned, and it was chiefly by his courage and example that the Tetons sustained themselves in the heroic manner they did when the death of Maturi was known. This warrior, who, in the figurative language of his people, was called the Swooping Eagle, had been the last to abandon the hopes of victory. When he found that the support of the dreaded rifle had robbed his band of the hard-earned advantages, he sullenly retired amid a shower of missiles to the secret spot where he had hid his horse in the mazes of the highest grass. Here he found a new and an entirely unexpected competitor, ready to dispute with him for the possession of the beast. It was Bacardina, the aged friend of Maturi, he whose voice had been given in opposition to his own wiser opinions, transfixed with an arrow, and evidently suffering under the pangs of approaching death. "'I have been on my last warpath,' said the grim old warrior, when he found that the real owner of the animal had come to claim his property. "'Shall a Pawnee carry the white hairs of a Sioux into his village to be a scorn to his women and children?' The other grasped his hand, answering to the appeal with the stern look of inflexible resolution. With this silent pledge he assisted the wounded man to mount. So soon as he had led the horse to the margin of the cover, he threw himself also on its back, and securing his companion to his belt, he issued on the open plain, trusting entirely to the well-known speed of the beast for their mutual safety. The Pawnees were not long in catching a view of these new objects, and several turned their steeds to pursue. The race continued for a mile without a murmur from the sufferer, though in addition to the agony of his body, he had the pain of seeing his enemies approach at every leap of their horses. "'Stop!' he said, raising a feeble arm to check the speed of his companion. "'The eagle of my tribe must spread his wings wider. Let him carry the white hairs of an old warrior into the burnt wood village.' Few words were necessary between men who were governed by the same feelings of glory, and who were so well trained in the principles of their romantic honor. The swooping eagle threw himself from the back of the horse, and assisted the other to alight. The old man raised his tottering frame to its knees, and first casting a glance upward at the countenance of his countryman, as if to bid him adieu, he stretched out his neck to the blow he himself invited. A few strokes of the tomahawk, with a circling gash of the knife, 
sufficed to sever the head from the less valued trunk. The Teton mounted again, just in season to escape a flight of arrows which came from his eager and disappointed pursuers. Flourishing the grim and bloody visage, he darted away from the spot with a shout of triumph, and was seen scouring the plains, as if he were actually borne along on the wings of the powerful bird from whose qualities he had received his flattering name. The swooping eagle reached his village in safety. He was one of the few Sioux who escaped from the massacre that fatal day, and for a long time he alone of the saved was able to lift his voice in the councils of his nation with undiminished confidence. The knife and the lance cut short the retreat of the larger portion of the vanquished. Even the retiring party of the women and children were scattered by the conquerors, and the sun had long sunk behind the rolling outline of the western horizon before the fell business of that disastrous defeat was entirely ended. End of chapter 30